Hey, everybody. My name is RJ Osborne, and I would like to welcome you all to a brand new podcast titled Sword and Spirit. This podcast is brought to you by First Baptist Church of Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. And we are excited to be bringing you this podcast. We have a lot of content in store for you guys uh, in the episodes to come. Uh, We're going to be going over a variety of topics. Uh, We'll be bringing in uh, different people for various interviews. But today, we're going to be starting a mini-series on the Bible. Uh, Today's episode is titled, The Reliability of Scripture. And so without further ado, I'll turn it over to our host, Pastor Brett Frazier. I'm sitting here today with uh, Dustin Pierce. What's up, Dustin? Hey, Hey, how's it going? Uh, Dustin serves here at our church as our associate pastor of students and discipleship. And we also have in the room uh, R.J. Osborne. And so, R.J., we, we're so thankful for you uh, taking the time to help us produce this podcast. And our hope is that we have a lot of fun with this, uh, but also that we encourage people who have been isolated and uh, struggling because of uh, COVID-19. It's been a crazy, crazy year. And so uh, we believe for our first episode we can focus on no greater topic than the Word of God. And so today, uh, we're going to talk about reliability of Scripture. So, uh, I'm going to focus on, to get us started off, just throw out some quick facts, and then we will talk about the integrity uh, of God's Word, and then Dustin's going to touch on the history of God's Word, the canon, and then towards the very end of the episode, we'll we'll share some sources. RJ will share those, uh, and also, you can do some further reading and discover some uh, your own truth about God's Word. So just quick facts about God's Word. Uh, it's written by 40 authors on three continents over a period of 1,500 years. Translated to more languages than any other book. Uh, today is still the number one selling book every year. It's that way. It addresses life's most basic questions. For example, what's the purpose of my life? Does God exist? How do we get here? So how do we know today, uh, we know we hear a lot about God's Word. Often you hear pastors talk about the Word of God, the Word of God is inerrant, it's infallible. But really, how do we know, really, that we can trust the Bible? How do we know that it's not just ancient fiction? How do we know it hasn't been tampered with? Uh, what makes it different uh, than the Koran or uh, the Book of Mormon? And so one example, as I like to just highlight, uh, is fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Everyone likes to make predictions, right? Uh, sports, political predictions, weather. Man, how are the weather forecasters in on the Gulf Coast, Dustin? Man, they, they get it wrong about, you know, 50% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I know you guys lived in New Orleans for a while, and it's the same thing uh, over in New Orleans it's just who who really knows the future except for the Lord? Uh, you take the 2016 election for example. Uh, no one ever thought that uh, Donald Trump would be the president of the United States. This shows you that uh, we have experts uh, at the end of the day. And if someone could guarantee they could know the future, they would be a filthy rich person. But the Bible has over and over and over predicted future events. It's filled with specific prophecies about persons, places. And events, and so just about the life of Jesus. I want you to listen to these. I'm going to reference just messianic prophecies about Jesus. He would be born 
uh, from the seed of Abraham, Genesis twenty two eighteen. He would be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis forty nine ten. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah five two. He would come while the temple was still standing, uh, Malachi three one. He would be born of a virgin. That's kind of a big deal. Born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter seven verse fourteen. He would open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of deaf, cause the lame to walk, Isaiah thirty five. Verse 5 and 6, the precise time he would die, Daniel chapter 9, how he would die, the famous passage in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and also Zechariah chapter 12, and then he would rise from the dead, Psalm 16. Uh, all of these are just an example of just in the life of Jesus of fulfilled prophecies. And we could sit here all day long to discuss hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I know, Dustin, you have a, a favorite uh, fulfilled prophecy that you always like to reference. Uh, what is that? Yeah, so in the book of Isaiah, we have this prophecy uh, in chapter 45 and verse 1 where Isaiah just comes out of nowhere and mentions Cyrus as the Lord's anointed. And we find out uh, towards the end of Israel's history in the Old Testament that Cyrus is the one who allows Israel to come out of exile and go back to Jerusalem. But this is so baffling because at the time that Isaiah even mentions this, Cyrus hasn't even been born yet. And the Persian Empire that he would one day rule hasn't even come into existence yet. And so it's just incredible that he would predict this with such accuracy. Yeah, that's crazy. It's like, you mean God knows our names before we're named? That's right. Absolutely. Very cool. So there's many reasons the Bible's reliable. We could talk all day about internal consistency, how from all these different authors, uh, how its its harmony is perfect. It all fits together. Perfect puzzle piece. Uh, we could talk about archaeological evidence. We could talk about uh, many things. But I like to point out just some scientific uh, accuracy and foresight that that I think is just it's just fun to think about. It's fun to talk about. Uh, a lot of other religious texts, like the Hindu Vedas, teaches the Earth is flat, triangular. Uh, that earthquakes result of elephants shaking their bodies underneath the ground. You have the Quran that says that the sun sets in a muddy spring, and so we know f- that good science teaches us that that's not true. Yet God's word stands the test of good science. In Psalm 19, verse 6, it says about the sun, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. For years, uh, secular scholars would make fun of David and and talk about how uh, David was such a uh, ignoramus. He was so ignorant because the sun stands still. And so that's what the critics uh, have said throughout the years, that David was wrong, that uh, science, the Bible's uh, archaic, it doesn't matter anymore, it's not relevant, it's a myth, until NASA came along and invented, uh, we have these modern telescopes, and now we know that the sun travels 515,000 miles per hour flying through space on a circuit through the heavens as it makes its way through the Milky Way galaxy which tells us David was right. David was right. We have the shape of uh, the earth. Job 26.10 says, God has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Isaiah 40.22 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. So we know that earth is round and 
Ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, and ancient Chinese all believed the earth was flat. So, had they just read the Bible, they would have known uh, it was round. The suspension of the earth. Today, still scientists still are baffled how the earth just hangs completely unattached. If they would read their Bible, they would see in Job chapter 26, verse 7, it says that he hangs the earth on nothing. Since we're talking about space, you look at the stars. For years, uh, before the invention of modern telescopes, astronomers would say that the number of stars is about 1,000, 1,100, 1,200. That they would count them, put them on a chart, and that's as many eyes, uh, stars as they could see with uh, a weak telescope or even the human eye. But now we know that there are billions of stars the Bible says in Jeremiah thirty three twenty two that the host of heaven cannot be numbered, talking about the stars, the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. Well, we now know because of modern science that there are a hundred billion to one trillion galaxies, and listen to this, in every single galaxy there are a hundred billion to ten trillion stars each and so wow we we know that uh just go spend some time on nasa's website right and you your mind will be blown and yet uh the bible had foresight already knew these facts about astronomy about the earth about biology and so as we get ready to segue to the history section of this uh this podcast i want to give you guys uh tell you about a friend of mine charlie campbell he he likes to say that uh if you go to a website a new website you go to a new company a new church a a new any organization that's got a credible site you go to the about us section and you find out uh often glowing some positive stuff about the history of that organization or about the founders but if you do that with the Bible, that's hard to do because you would find, and Dustin's about to talk about Moses, but the founder, it would say, on the, if it was a website, the founder would be a murderer. Uh, some of the early fathers would be adulterer in the Old Testament and have criminal records. But the Bible, uh, and so the authors of the Bible would never want to include, if they were just making this stuff up, uh, they would never want to include these details about failure, personal failure, and their own sin. And yet the Bible includes, time and time again, all the failures of these spiritual leaders uh, from Moses who killed a guy, uh, and and many other times it includes all of this sin, Noah, David. um, We realize that they weren't perfect. They were sinners. And so these authors of the Bible, they were more concerned about sharing the truth from God, from the Spirit of God, rather than trying to make themselves look good. And so today we can absolutely trust that God's Word is reliable, it's completely trustworthy, and we can put all our faith in it today. Dustin? And so moving forward, we're going to talk about the history of the Bible. Where does it come from? If it's so reliable, why why do we not talk more about where does it come from? Where did it start? And so let's begin with where did it start? It starts with a man named Moses. Moses leads this group of people out of Egypt in captivity, and he's already had an encounter with God. 
uh, what's recorded to be the burning bush. And then he has another encounter with God at Mount Sinai. And there we see Moses uh, recording the first five books of the Bible. Uh, And you find that there within those first five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 31, verse 24, is just one example of a time that the Bible itself says that Moses wrote these first part of the first part of the Bible, the law. And we also see in the New Testament, in John chapter 5, verses 46 through 47, that the New Testament agrees Moses wrote the law. Uh, you can see that also in John 1, 17. There's numerous places throughout the New Testament where it is affirmed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. But even throughout the entire Old Testament and the history of the Hebrew people, in First Kings, which is a historical book, uh, not long after Uh, The exile, we have the conquest of the land of Canaan, and Israel takes over, and then their history, they begin to have a monarchy. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, we see another, it's affirmed, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. Uh, In Daniel, while the people were exiled from the land of Israel, it's again affirmed, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Uh, In in, uh, Nehemiah, which is after this exile, and in Second Chronicles, it's again affirmed uh, in Nehemiah eight fourteen and Second Chronicles twenty five four uh, or thirty sixteen that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So it all starts off. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, and then the Hebrew people divide their Bible into three sections. Uh, what we call the Law, they would call the Torah. Uh, and then they, their next section is the Nevi'im, which just is Hebrew for the prophets. So they divide their Bible into the law, Torah, the prophets, Nevi'im, and then the writings, which in Hebrew is Kithubim. And so they call their Bible the Tanakh, T-N-K, uh, because it's the Torah, Nevi'im, and Kithubim. And so all of these things build off of Moses' first five books of the Bible. So the Nevi'im is prophets who see God's law and God's promises in the Torah and respond, and not only that, but through the Holy Spirit, prophetically predict things and are just led along to lead the people and show the people what they're doing by the Holy Spirit. And then the Kithubim is writings. They can be poetic, they can be proverbial, uh, or they can just simply be historical in nature, and they're just writings that build on the history or they're inspired by the Torah. So it's history of the people who are from that same law that Moses wrote about, or it's inspired by them. So all of that leads us up to the beginning of the Old Testament, how it all started. And so from that, we began to gather all these books together, and we create what's called a canon. Now, canon literally, uh, it means a measuring rod. It can be like a, a reed that you might use to measure something. It's basically like a ruler. And so we have all these different rules that a book has to meet in order to find its way into the canon. But before we developed the New Testament canon, the Old Testament canon had already been in existence since well before the time of Jesus. And we know this because if you look in the New Testament, Jesus read the Old Testament. In fact, there is one instance where he goes and into a synagogue on the Sabbath and he reads from the book of Isaiah. Not only that, but he quoted 
the Old Testament. You just look at the temptation of Jesus. There he is. He's quoting the Old Testament. He is uh, responding to the temptations of the devil by using Scripture in the Old Testament. Not only that, but Jesus has several places where he mentions the Old Testament. For example, in Luke chapter 11, verses 50 through 51, we'll actually start in verse 49 just to understand the context a little bit better. It says, For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them will kill some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets that was shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. So what we see here in this passage is this mention of Abel and Zechariah. Now, if you were to put all the books of the Old Testament in chronological order, Abel would be the first person to die in the Old Testament. And then the last person to die and be persecuted in the Old Testament is Zechariah, which implies that the same Old Testament we have is the same Old Testament that Jesus had, that he is looking at this entirety of the Old Testament, and he's pulling out the first death and the last death. Uh, another passage, if you'll look over in Luke twenty four forty four. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So each of these sections is part of that's those same divisions of the Hebrew Bible. So the writings of Moses, that's the Torah. The Psalms, that would be part of the Kithubim, those writings. And then the prophets, of course, would be the Nivi'im, the prophets themselves. And so here we have Jesus mentioning these divisions of the Bible, which implies that it's the same Bible uh, that we use today. If you look in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, uh, Jesus here, again, is quoting they're talking about the law and the prophets. And so at the beginning and the end, he says this. All these implications are that Jesus had the same Old Testament that we have today. Not only that, but a famous Jewish historian, Josephus, mentions all these same divisions. He talks about the writings of Moses. He talks about hymns and principles, which could be uh, the historical and the uh Psalm, historical writings, Psalms, Proverbs, all those things fit into that category, which would be the Kithubim. And then he talks about prophets, which is the Nivim. And so all of this famous historian is mentioning these same exact divisions. And then we have a translation of the Bible from Hebrew to Greek centuries before Jesus even comes onto the scene. And I was talking about this with our pastor earlier, and you can't have a translation of something without having a set canon of these are the books that we're going to translate. And so we know that at least centuries before Jesus comes onto the scene, there is a canon because there's a translation of said canon. Uh, Not only that, but archaeological discoveries in the 1800s, we found what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the same way, they were focused on these same exact books. Uh, Not only did Jesus cite these, but the apostles cite these. The New Testament uses them all throughout. And so we we say the Old Testament canon uh, pre-existed, Uh, It existed before the New Testament, and it was used during the New Testament. Now, the New Testament canon is a little bit different, a little bit harder to say, how did this come about? What happened here? And I think the best place for us to start is the canon of Marcion. 
Marcion was a, a guy in around A.D. 140, so you know about a century after Jesus has come onto the scene, and he says, you know what, I think I'm going to compile uh, what I believe to be the most essential teachings of Jesus, and he compiles all these different books, all these letters, all these gospels, all these different things. And it was received with a great deal of criticism. Some people agreed on some of it, but a lot of it was rejected. It was not what people wanted to be their canon. And so this sparks discussion between all these different church fathers and people start citing different things in the Bible, or they start saying, I believe these books are essential. And others say, I believe these books are essential. And we don't know how the understanding came about. There's no official, how did this happen? How do we see this coming about? How do we see all these things compiled? But what we do see is sometime between the time of Marcion and the time of Jerome, Jerome was a guy who, at the Council of Rome, they came together and said, Jerome, we want you to write a Latin translation of the Bible from Greek and Hebrew to Latin. So this, so this Marcion guy, he, he tried to, he took a swing at it. Yes. And he was wrong. Yes. Well, right? some of it was right, but some okay. of it was not right. Okay. And so then Jerome comes along. Yes. So Jerome comes along and is asked to make this translation from Greek and Hebrew to Latin, which again, gotcha. you can't translate these the Bible without having an established canon. Right. You can't begin to, to make these translations and have an established set of books unless someone has already established them. Now, we have no written place where these are officially established, but we have lots of people who took a shot at it, and we have lots of people who came together and said, well, I think it should be these books, and I think it should be those books. But for sure, definitely, by the 3rd century, or by the 4th century, by the 300s, you definitely have an established canon. So sometime between Marcion's canon in 140 AD all the way up to Jerome, you mm. definitely have this canon established. So Sweet. if you look at how, how did all this come about, what are the things that we are trying to use to develop this canon. Well, let's let's talk about some of some of what happened there. First of all, the early church said it doesn't belong in our canon unless it's inspired. But how do you measure and how do you come up with inspiration? Well, first of all, it had to be something that expressed right doctrine. It had to be something that all agreed, and some tools that helped people know that were the Old Testament. If it disagreed with the Old Testament, it was out. Uh, if it disagreed with the traditions and oral teachings of the church, it was out. And if there were early Christian prophets and people who witnessed uh, Christ on earth who disagreed with it, or it disagreed with something that they said about it, then it was out. So all these tools were used to decide, does this align with right doctrine? Then, was it did it have apostolicity? Apostolicity just means, was it written by an apostle or was it written by a close associate of an apostle? And sort of a subcategory here is, was it written within the same time frame as the apostolic age? In other words, was it written while apostles were still alive on this earth? And so Jude is the latest dated document in the New Testament, and it was written within the time Within a century from the time that Jesus walked on the earth, it was written just after the end of the first century. Uh, it was, and then another thing, it had to be accepted by 
the majority of churches. Now, we do have some other writings that were rejected here. Uh, some of these were considered important because they were written by people who were taught directly by the disciples, something like uh, the Didache, which helps us to understand uh, the mode that we should baptize people in. Uh, while it's not considered inspired, it is helpful. And then there were other writings like the Apocrypha, which were considered uh, to not have any form of uh, authenticity, but it does help us to understand things like the form of certain genre and style and different things like that. But lacks inspiration, even lacks authority. And so the last thing I want to talk about is how did we end up from Greek and Hebrew and then even Jerome's Latin translation, how do we end up with our Bible today? Well, here's something that we all agree on. Every book of the Bible in the New Testament was written and sent to a specific audience or a specific church. And so every single one of these had a place where it was sent and it belonged, but other churches wanted copies of these. And so maybe they would borrow them for a, from a, for a time, make a copy, and then send the original back. Well, then you end up with copies upon copies upon copies. And so when archaeologists look back at these old documents, it's hard to tell which one is the original or if we have the original at all. And so the best thing we can do is compare all these different copies through a field called textual criticism. And this basically is you look at the text and you try your best to figure out which one is most accurate. And one way you do that is you say, well, most of the documents have it written this way. So that seems to be the way it should go. Or this document is much older. And so it's probably closer to the time that it was actually written. So we use that. Another might say, well, let's look at the context and let's look at the way that the author has written in the past and see if this fits. Uh, And then so all these things are taken into account to help you decipher which one of these passages, which one of these manuscripts do we look at to, to figure out the most accurate compilation of these books. And so what we do is we put all this together to create a Hebrew and a Greek Bible, and then we begin the process of translation. So after textual criticism comes translation, when we get it as accurate as we think we possibly can. And so one of these translations we talked about earlier, the Vulgate, uh, translated by Jerome, uh, was done during the 4th century. And then we have another translation. Let's just talk about English translations. There were other translations done, like Martin Luther translated the Bible into German and all these things. But let's, for our context, talk about English. John Wycliffe, in the 1300s, translate the, translates the Bible into English from Latin. And then in the 1500s, we have William Tyndall, who translates the Greek New Testament and only the New Testament into English. And then in that same century, we have these Protestants who come together and they begin to compile different works uh, to come up with what's called the Geneva Bible, which is actually the first English translation of the Bible, full English translation of the Bible. Uh, Later, that same century, the Catholics begin to work on a English translation of the Bible. And then the next century after that, in 1611, we have King James in England asking for scholars to come together and work on a translation, which we now know as the King James Version. Now, since that time, again, we talked about in the 1800s. Paul, I know a lot of people just assume that the King James Bible is the first English, but what you're saying is, is that the Geneva Bible was the very first English from Hebrew and Greek Right to yes, English. It was the first completed uh, from Hebrew and Greek uh, English translation. Gotcha. Uh, now it was worked on by lots of different scholars and lots of different eras, and then sort of combined later. Uh, so it wasn't the first where somebody just where a group of scholars sat to get down together 
all at one time and made a translation. Uh, that actually was the King James. And it's something that, that I had never heard before that we talked about earlier is that uh, the Catholic Church actually translated their own copy uh, of their English Bible before King James. Yes, yes, they did. And so those are, but those are your two probably most for the time period most accurate translations were probably the Catholic Church and the King James Bible. So at the end of the 1500s and the beginning of the 1600s, those are your your two English translations that are probably the most wow. reliable. Yeah. But since then. Like we talked about earlier with the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1800s, this discovery is made, and it made people think, well, now that we have all these new sources, shouldn't we compare them and make sure that the sources we have are our most accurate sources? And so what we have is a new uh, just surge of textual criticism where we want to make sure we got it right, which led to... Uh, the RSV translation, it, uh, actually the first translations were the English Revised Version in 1881 and then the American Re- Revised Version in 1901. Is so the English the, Revised, is that the first uh, English translation since King James? That is, uh, well, I'm not sure if it's the first since King James, but it is the first since we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Gotcha, gotcha. So we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and then we have the English Revised Version and then we have the American Revised Version uh, just about 20 years later. And then after that, the uh, vocabulary of the King James Version is updated. Now, the translation right. itself was not updated. The vocabulary itself, though, was modernized. And so we do have more modern language used in the King James, but the translation work itself has not been modernized. So we have modernized translation work done in the English Revised Version and the American Revised Version. And then since then, we have the RSV, the New American Standard Bible, the uh, NIV, the ESV, the CSB are all some of our more modern translations. English translations. Yes, more modern English translations. And so if you were to ask me, well, which ones are the most readable, I would say NIV and CSB are the most readable versions. And if you were to ask me out of those two, which one is most accurate, I would tell you probably the CSB. If you were to ask me which one is the most accurate Bible, I would say the New American Standard Bible and the English Standard Version, the ESV and the NASB, are your most accurate. And out of those two, which one is just a bit more readable is probably the ESV. So they're both very good, very accurate. ESV might be just a bit more readable, but both really good translations. And if you used any of those four, I would say, man, you're on point, great versions. Uh, If you wanted to use the King James, you absolutely could. It's uh, useful. It's helpful. Some people grew up on it. Uh, So if you used any of those translations, great translations. the, The New King James is very accurate. Oh, yeah. That's another time that they updated the vocabulary of uh, the King James was the New King James. And so all great translations, um, but it all goes back to originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. And again, it all started with Moses. We went through all that history of how the Old Testament canon came about, how the New Testament canon came about, how it just uh, became an understood, these are the books of our Bible. And then Jerome makes that first translation all the way up to ESV, CSB, NASB, King James Version, all those things. So, I mean, lots of rich history there and all gone through, I mean, 
serious fields of uh, scholarly criticism to make sure this is reliable, dependable, and I mean just rich history agreed upon by the church. This is our Bible. This is where it came from. Awesome. And so when you have like a a Chinese Bible, when they translate a a Bible into Chinese, obviously they can take these English translations and translate them, but uh, the best foreign translations are not foreign uh, necessarily, but different than English. Uh, what they do is they look back at the you know, Old Testament, they look at Hebrew, and they translate it straight from Hebrew straight to their language. And same way with the New Testament, from the Greek to their Chinese, or let's say if it was in India, they translate it straight from Hebrew and Greek to Hindi, straight. Uh, we always just assume it's got to come to English first, but that's not true. God's Word transcends all languages. So that's awesome. So thank you, Dustin. We learned a lot. Uh, some people thought maybe that the cannons was uh, about a physical cannon blasting off in an old war or something, but that, no, that's not what it's talking about. So uh, that's awesome. I know a lot of people have wondered these things, and, and maybe that can be helpful. And, and the idea is that this strengthens your faith today in the Word of God. Uh, so uh, as we get ready to wrap up, uh, we we don't want these things to run too long, but uh I just want to encourage you, remind you, we want to remind you that uh, C.S. Lewis always loved to talk about those uh, disciples who gave their lives. And so we know oral history, also extra-biblical sources, uh, secular writings even, tell us a lot about what supposedly happened to uh, the disciples and many of the authors of the New Testament. And so I just want to rattle off a few of those just to encourage our faith today and, and really to honor their legacy of faith. Matthew uh, supposedly was slain with an axe in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through streets in Alexandria. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and also penned the book of Luke, they were going through on Sunday mornings. He was hung to death in Greece. John was tortured and banished to Patmos. James, brother of John, Acts chapter 12, says he was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less, what a terrible name. James the Less was stoned. Philip was stoned. Also, Barnabas was stoned. You mean Barnabas, old Barney, the most encouraging guy in the New Testament? Absolutely. He was stoned for his faith. And then uh, Bartholomew, he was flayed alive. Andrew, he was tied to a cross and left to die. Jude, he was shot to death with arrows. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Peter, as we all know, was crucified upside down, and then Thomas was speared to death in India. And so Lewis, C.S. Lewis' argument always has been, and it makes a lot of sense, that these guys would have never have died for something that they would have known to be a lie. And so these disciples, these new apostles, uh, even the one that they add there at the end, Matthias, even he was martyred, church history tells us. And so these, these guys, they saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. They were absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Son of God sent to take away our sins and to give us life, and, to, and really life for all who would repent and receive this free gift of salvation. And so uh, I hope this will encourage you today. Uh, Dustin, you want to say anything else about the reliability of Scripture? Uh, I would just say it is uh, absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. Uh, we believe that the Bible is our foundation for faith and practice. Everything that we do is built off of the Bible, and we will probably refer back to this podcast and its importance in many future podcasts to come because the Bible, it's our foundation. 
That's right. And so, you know, as pastors, we're, we're called to uh, follow the Lord. We're called to preach the word. God's been very clear. Uh, so maybe you're a minister listening to this and, and trying, or maybe even think about going to the ministry. And so you just need to think about, man, if you sign up to, to go into the ministry, to join it, to be commissioned by a local church into the ministry, you are going to have to decide ahead of time if you're going to stand upon the Word of God. Many churches that are having trouble today is because they're led by people who do not believe in the infallibility of the Word of God. They pick and choose what feels good. Uh, they're not true to the text. Uh, they um, they don't stand on the Word. And so uh, we hope that if we ever stray from the Word of God, that God will uh, get our attention bring us back to the central truth of God's word and even kill us if he, if he has to. Uh, I know that's my prayer. And and so we want to be biblical. Everything that we do, we want to be able to reference why are we doing this? Because this is what the Bible says. And so that's what kind of church, if you're looking at a church, uh, you don't have to come to our church. But we want to encourage you to find a church that believes the Bible, stands on the word of God, loves people, and is on board with making disciples of all nations. So we will reference this podcast, absolutely. This is the foundation title of our podcast, Sword and Spirit. And so the first few episodes, we'll focus on the sword. Uh, the next episode, we'll talk about the relevancy of Scripture. How is this? We know it's true. We know what you guys have said. But how is this relevant to my life today in 2020, dealing with corona, dealing with our uh, cultural wars that are happening, uh, dealing with gender confusion, uh, dealing with abortion, and 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 all of these modern uh, things in our culture, we want to be able to say that God's word has something to say about all these issues. It applies; it's relevant. And so, the next episode, that's what we're going to focus in on. And how is God's word relevant? How does it impact us? How can it help us today? And then I believe our third episode will focus in on how do we study the Bible? How do we dig down in it on our own and apply it to our life? And so I hope this has encouraged you. I hope you have a great, great week. And uh, hopefully you've done something productive as you have listened to this podcast. And I hope it will edify you. Uh, Dustin, anything you want to say? Uh, Just thank you guys for listening. And I hope you all are having a good one. Yeah. Uh, Have a great week. And we'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode of Sword and Spirit. If you like this episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button to stay up to date on all of our future content. And if you'd like to read up more on today's topic, be sure to check out Canon of Scripture by F.F. Bruce, Evidences for the Bible by Charlie Campbell, Story of Christianity, Volumes 1 and 2 by Justo L. Gonzalez, On the Reliability of the Old Testament by Kenneth Kitchens. The New Testament, Its Background and Message by Thomas D. Lee and David Allen Black. And Inspiration by J.C. Ryle. Until next time, bye.